Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Coming up on the Autosport podcast today, we're talking about the future of motorsport. I'm James Allen, and at last week's Autosport International show, Europe's largest racing car show, we had a day of discussions about our sport. It's called the Motorsport Leaders Business Forum. On the podcast today, we look at how our sport increasingly has to justify its existence in the face of some major threats. Addressing first the question of what governments think of motorsport, I was joined on stage by the Right Honourable Lord Hain and the Chairman of Motorsport UK, David Richards. What do governments think about motorsport right here, right now, as we go into 2020? New government in the UK, is the Boris Johnson administration pro or anti-motorsport? What is Brexit going to mean for our sport in this country and in Europe? Obviously, there's a tremendous economic impact to motorsport that it brings to regions. I can't think of anyone better to kick off our discussion about what, uh, what governments think of motorsport than this gentleman here, uh, the Right Honourable Peter Hain. Uh, Lord Hain, who uh, was a government minister in the Blair and Brown cabinets. He was one of the people that negotiated the Good Friday Agreement. But as we'll find out, he's a passionate motorsport fan. He's done an awful lot behind the scenes for our sport. And he is going to shed some light on what governments think about motorsport. Lord Hain. James, thanks very much. And great to see you all here. And wandering around this morning, (laughs) there's so much going on which showcases the potential of motorsport and high-performance engineering and all the different skills and enthusiasms and entrepreneurship and dedication that there is here, which the rest of the world should know about, and particularly government should know about. But my passion for motorsport started off uh, when I lived in South Africa as a boy, 
and my dad took me to Kyalami, watched David Piper win the nine-hour uh, all-night um, touring car race, sports car race. And uh, I then, when I came to Britain, because we had to leave the country during the anti-apartheid struggle, I, I, got, I went to Silverstone and I, as a member of parliament, I raced against the Lords. I'm now in the House of Lords. I remember dicing with Ken Clark at, um, <laughs> at Brands Hatch and beating him. Uh, but then I was knocked off at Clearways by a Tory MP. I'm, I was a Labour MP uh, who I think wanted to create a by-election. <laughs> and I rolled my car and landed up on my, uh, on my back or on my head, actually. And, and then I, we moved that race to Donington. I'm afraid I crashed there as well. So I'm not a very good advertisement for a motorsport driver. And I also had the privilege of being driven around Silverstone and um, Monaco and Spa by the safety car. And that is a fantastic experience. Very good. Well, there's your credentials spelled out for us all. So, but obviously you've been sitting in government for a long time. You've, we'll hear later on about some of the things you've done to, to help the sport in, in this country. But here we are, 2020, with all that's going on in the world. How do governments view our sport? What are ministers sitting in government? How do they generally view our sport? And, and particularly, how is it evolving now in this world that we're entering? Politicians and government ministers particularly react to events react to pressure, react to public opinion. The default position is one of neutral to hostile towards motorsport, I would think, in the political class. Not just because of the environmental agenda and the sense that motorsport is about petrol heads and burning a lot of fuel and emissions and the rest of it, but because there's very little understanding by most members of parliament and most government ministers of what you all do and what this industry means for the country and what it means for um, Britain's reputation. I mean, we're the center of motorsport and Formula One in the world. And so what every British government minister, as I did when I was one, and every British MP should be doing is championing this industry. And so I think you're starting off from a low base generally uh, except when you get a government minister to Silverstone for Formula One and people or a member of parliament and they can't believe what they're seeing. Well, the scale of it? The scale of it, the, the, um, the sheer expertise there is there, the technology, if you're taken around the pits, just seeing this leading edge, you know, state-of-the-art technology way ahead of anything they might have come across. And uh, so I think that the question then, James, is what do we do about it? Parliaments, governments, ministers, MPs do not change unless you make them change. We haven't now got a sudden commitment on climate change and environmentalism because there was sudden change of heart. It's because of David Attenborough. It's because of Extinction Rebellion turning London into a kind of gridlock place. You've got to react. And I think the industry, and that's all of you, should become missionaries for your particular expertise and for the sport uh, in especially, and make sure that you get round your local MP to visit your factory, your office, your design studio, whatever it is, see what you're doing, be photographed with you for the local news media, and uh, then have an opportunity to lobby them and talk to them about it 
and try to get them engaged because in the end you're a voter and your staff are voters and they will listen to you because you're adding wealth to the local economy. That's, it's up to you. You can't complain about ministers and politicians either being indifferent or neutral or possibly hostile if you're not getting your message across. That's a really good point. Obviously the perception in this country is that um, the government thinks that motor racing is a wealthy sport and whereas they're happy to put money into a Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games and we've seen big infrastructure projects around, yeah. around sporting events but not Silverstone. Stuart Pringle from Silverstone is here in the audience today. He knows better than anybody uh, the struggle that they've had with the government. Is that actually the case? What, what, do, what do ministers think of, of, of it from that point of view? We're not going to give you any money. You're a wealthy sport already. Ministers interact with the media and the media's reaction, you could just imagine the tabloid's reaction if, say, uh, the British government gave to Silverstone the kind of money that Baku gets for the, the Grand Prix there or Bahrain gets or any of those kind of new world circuits. I mean, they get hundreds of millions from their governments to showcase their countries around the world. But what would happen in Britain if we try to do this, and I remember the argument over Silverstone in the 1990s and early 2000s when the traffic was all jammed up and it took you hours to get here and sometimes you were late for the race, and an argument inside the government about how we could help Silverstone. The best way we were able to help it is not what other governments do in Azerbaijan and so on. It was actually to build the road system. The dual carriageway. The dual carriageway and the A43, which resolved the problem. Now that, I think, from memory, cost 30 to 50 million pounds. So that's quite a big injection, but that was a better way to do it. Although Stuart, to whom I was talking uh, before the session, James, tells me that actually your heritage center, I think I'm right, got nine million of lottery money because it's a heritage event. So there, you, there is, there are ways of leveraging money, but just asking government to write a big check for motorsport is not going to happen. But there are other ways of leveraging public funds to complement what you're doing uh, in your own businesses. Let's speak to the actual theme of our, of our conference today, this sort of na notion that we need to have a greater sense of purpose. I said in my intro that my, my view and what I pick up from brands and being around Formula One and all the different paddocks of, of the sport is that entertainment isn't enough anymore as far as our, our sport's concerned. It has to show a greater sense of purpose. What's your view? I agree entirely. I mean, we started off on the climate change question and uh, I, I agree absolutely entirely. And motorsport has got a, bit, a big story to tell. I mean, if you look at what the FIA does on road safety, on mobility and disability, for example, on sustainability. There's, there's a lot of fantastic things that the sport is doing, but not enough people know about it. And not enough people know about it, although Motorsport UK are doing a great job, the MIA, the Motor Industry, uh, Motorsport Industry Association, that does a great job. But you all have to tell that story yourselves. And I think the sport needs to develop in a way and have a forward-looking agenda that recognizes that the sport does make emissions with the internal combustion engine. Uh, but actually the technology, I think I'm right in saying the Formula One engine is the most efficient engine in the world at 50 odd percent, whereas the average uh, engine in your car is a kind of 20 odd percent efficient. Now, if we can make that a message understood and then attract the rest of the, uh, the motor 
uh, car industry to try and get to Formula One's level and Formula One helping it, then you get the kind of sustainability message that is intrinsic to your business. It's not a kind of soft charitable addition, it's actually what makes the business work. And I think that's the way the sport's got to go and we've all got to go. There's also obviously the stories of, of how the sport has played its part in bringing about societal change and political change. And perhaps not too, in, uh, an abbreviated version, you could give us your, how you basically were involved in the, in the rally in Ireland that during the troubles connected north and south and actually foreshadowed the Good Friday peace process. Well, I was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at the time and became aware that motorsport and rallying is absolutely, really passionately uh, followed and involved in, in, in Northern Ireland. And so what I did was uh, talk to Max Mosley. Well, first of all, they put me as a co-driver, as a navigator with Billy Coleman, who was the legendary Irish champion. I think David Richards knew him. And so I drove around in front of the... Um, uh, the safety the safety car uh, and tried to sort of pretend I knew what I was doing and then went to Max Mosley and said we need to get this in the World Rally Championship because if we do this will be make an enormous statement about uniting north and south and dissolving a lot of the historic conflicts and we managed to do that and Ian Paisley who by that stage I'd managed to negotiate into power as First Minister with the former IRA commander, Martin McGuinness, actually opened the rally at Stormont. It was the first stage. And so that made a big statement about how the sport could, act, could really achieve something, in this case, helping to end a conflict. And there are many other examples where motorsport could play that kind of role as well. And finally, before we bring on uh, David Richards, the, the chairman of the, RS, of the uh, Motorsport UK, the, our national sporting federation, I just want to ask you what impact you think Brexit is going to have on our sport in the next 12 months, five years, etc. And also particularly what you see of the Johnson administration and their attitude towards the sport. Well, I think we're still in a period. Apparently, Brexit is going to be done by the end of the month. Well, it will in the sense that we will leave the European Union, in the sense we won't have um, ministers and uh, parliamentarians and the commissioner and so on. We won't be part of the structures, the decision-making structures, but we'll still be in to the end of the year. And it depends what deal is negotiated. I mean, half our trade is with the European Union. If we just go for no deal, or a very hard deal that isn't aligned with the European Union, it's going to make it very difficult for all of you. And it's going to make it very difficult for Formula One, which is the center of uh, the world here in Britain, because they're going to have to have, I think Mercedes is talking about locating some of its facilities already possibly in Stuttgart, instead of Brackley, to cope with this. Unless we have alignment and suppliers and so on being able to move their things in and out of uh, through the channel tunnel it's going to be extremely difficult so i would lobby your mp and i would lobby the government and use your voice as a vital part of british industry and high performance engineering to make sure that we get frictionless opportunities and make sure the dogma doesn't get in the way of that so i'm not entering into the brexit debate i've voted in campaign for remain but we're now going down that road. It's really important that you make your voice heard because this is the time when the decisions are going to be made. 
thank you for the moment. Let's now bring on the man who's the sharp end of the spear, if you like, when it's, we're talking about the British motorsport um, industry, uh, the whole sport in the UK, connecting with governments and obviously part of the FIA as well. Please welcome the chairman of Motorsport UK, David Richard, CBE. What's your perspective on the, what Peter's just been talking about regarding the consequences for Brexit? Obviously, you're having conversations yeah. about this all the time. And yeah. what's your, what are your early impressions of the, of the Johnson administration now that it's got this massive majority? How friendly is it going to be to motorsport? I think it's early days yet. Yeah, there are a few members, a few ministers that have been very supportive. We, uh, the, the person who championed the closed roads legislation was Ben Wallace, who's the Minister for Defence. And um, there are other... Uh, Jake, um, what's Jake Berry, is it, up in the north, northern England minister? There are a number of ministers very supportive, but they've got a big agenda. And, you know, we're a minority sport, sort of looking after ourselves. They, we're not top of the pile, as Peter says, unless we sort of make our voices heard and sort of have specific issues we want to be tackled. We're, we're, we're not going to come up to the sort of on the agenda of a government that's got lots of other issues to tackle. We've come into this discussion today talking about these threats, which are very obvious to our sport. What are you, as an ASN, doing to promote the sport to face up to those threats at a, a government level, at a sporting level, at an FIA level? We have completely restructured Motorsport UK over the last couple of years now. New team of people, new CEO, Hugh Chambers. Um, the governing body, historically in this country, has been a regulator of the sport. It's done a superb job of regulating the sport, making it safe and making it fair for participants. The bit we haven't done is promote it effectively. And so we've shifted a lot of emphasis now and a lot of investment for the future into effectively representing the sport and promoting it. And that, of course, means within government circles. It means with the, the public at large because it's, it's critical at this time of, you know, when everything's changing to make ourselves more relevant and only by making ourselves relevant will we make ourselves sustainable for the long term. And that's the, the challenge we face. So do you agree with what Peter was saying earlier about being a bit more active? I mean, not to the extent that he was running on the cricket pitch to get things stopped, but do you feel you need to become missionaries? Do you want all the people here today and, uh, and here at the Autosport International show to, to get a bit more proactive in support I, of the I sport? think uh, we've for too long been apologetic about our sport. And it's very easy today to sort of think to ourselves that, you know, we've, we've got to apologise for sort of running around in circles, burning rubber and fossil fuels when uh, there are lots of other positive aspects to it. And we're, uh, if you come to the Motorsport UK stand, you'll see electric karting, which we're about to launch in the UK. We're looking at uh, different sustainable fuels in, in sporting categories in the UK as well. And we'll look at a whole range of initiatives from, you've got Natalie here later today for disability motorsport. We're doing a lot in education now. We've got to get out there and look at all the other touch points and, and motorsport historically in this country, um, we have been great innovators and motorsport has led the way in so much technology over many, many years. But I don't think that's the case the last decade. I think we've fallen into the trap of we're really entertainment. It's not about technology anymore for logical reasons to get sort of get it on TV and do all the right things. But um, we have to get the initiative again. We've got to be leading the way. We've got to look at uh, electric motorsport. We've got to look at hydrogen as a form of motorsport for the future. And we've got to really get out there and, and show what we can do. What have you learned from your years of being on the other side of the table from people like Peter 
and wanting help and support from government. What have you learned from your experiences of that that you're now putting into the role that you have as the chief of our national sporting well, um, body? Peter probably doesn't know this, but I, um, uh, when Silverstone was trying to get some money from, uh, uh, from the government to, for the Grand Prix, this is going back a number of years now, it was suggested that I had a few friends in, in Parliament, so I had lunch with Tony Blair. And so I said, look, we need some cash to help us here. We just, you know, uh, to get this Grand Prix, you've given it to the Olympics, you give it to here, wouldn't it be good for us? And he turned around and said, look, there are, there are three very valid reasons why I don't think the government, uh, the public purse should be subsidising uh, the Grand Prix. Uh, the first one is it's, um, it's run by, the Grand Prix is run by a gentleman's club in the middle of England. Um, the second reason is that the sport is sponsored by uh, products that we're trying to ban. This is in the cigarette era. And the third reason is all the, uh, all the uh, profits of it do not go to the sport itself. They, they go off to an individual who doesn't pay any tax in this country. And so I didn't really have a strong argument after that. And I thought, well, we've got to start again here somewhere. And, but most of those things have gone away. They've actually changed now. And we are in a position where we should be sort of promoting all the great things we're doing and looking for uh, government support. And it doesn't have to be financial support necessarily. It just means build awareness, make, make people realize just what great things the industry in this country does. So what's your vision of how you and the government collaborate then? What well, it's, uh, as I say, it's very early days now. We're setting out our agenda. We're setting out an agenda to promote motorsport very strongly in the longer term. That's what I feel our role as a governing body has got to, uh, got to be. I don't think, you know, as individuals we can do our own thing, but as a collective we can be far more effective. Um, we will be a very strong voice within Parliament, with our friends in Parliament, across all sections of Parliament, and Peter and I have uh, joined cross-party events there that are sort of, you know, and we've got a number of friends there. So uh, I think the starting point is to sort of look at how we promote ourselves in, in those areas we just talked about, from uh, the way we can integrate with schools and you know the way that cart racing can sort of be used in STEM subjects and help uh, on that side. And we've got lots of great examples. We're just looking at green power over there. They stand there. They do great work there. But so few people know about these things and, and that's our, our role now. What's your perception of the, the viability of using racing as a, for road safety campaigning? We know it's something that's very, very important to Jean Tardy's part of his commitment to the United Nations. Do you see that making a difference? Do you, from, you were in the FIE conference in, in uh, South Africa last year. From what you're picking up, is, is it cutting through? Is it making a difference? I think it's crucial uh, because of all the technologies in the sport in order to make it. I mean, I think I'm right in saying there are more deaths in Africa from car accidents than there, is, than there are from malaria. But that's, or, or certainly they're of the same order. Now, that, that kind of, when you, when you think about it that way, it really shows you how important the FIA's agenda is, and motorsports agenda is. But then to pick up on what David was saying and, and that I said earlier, I suppose my message to all of you is don't moan and complain if you're not understood. Go out and do what you can in your patch. Every MP thinks of you as a voter. Every MP thinks of you as a job creator in your area. And every MP might also think that some of his or her constituents follow motorsport or are interested in what you're doing or have got a connection into the local college. Tie up with the local schools and colleges. Tell them what you're doing as well. Get to the parents that way. 
get your message across about these key messages that David and his colleagues are putting across? I think one of the things that people are not so aware of and uh, we should champion, we've got one of the biggest volunteer forces of any sport in this country. And these are not just volunteers, these are experts in their area of sort of, you know, whether it's in first aid, whether it's in all the sort of uh, quick response vehicles and things in, the, in motorsport around the country. And we've got 10,000 licensed volunteers at the moment and, and that number I believe will grow. Um, this is a very powerful lobbying group as well and um, you'll have noticed perhaps those that have licenses that we're licensing all the grassroots motorsport now we will build a far bigger lobbying group than we've had historically and we've had historically 30,000 uh, license holders that number will exceed 50 very shortly and we suddenly once we get to sort of 100,000 license holders you start to have a bit of influence and things yeah and so we've got to start to use that um, but we've also got to look at all the other touch points and during the course of this year we will be giving motor clubs in this country all the tools and the ammunition to defend themselves about from local lobby groups who sort of say hang on a minute you know that doesn't look very correct in terms of sort of the environment what are you doing and we will give people the tools to argue that case and defend it quite rightly and reasonably to be able to show all the positive things that we do. We're very deliberately sitting here in the engineering hall at Autosport International as opposed to sitting on the main stage, the Autosport stage. And the reason for that is because if you look around you, as I'm sure you have, this is technology. This is, you touched on this earlier on about the hybrid engines in Formula One that are halfway to perfect, basically, in terms of efficiency. They're 50% efficient, never, numbers never seen before. And there has always been this track to road story, hasn't there, David? But Peter was saying it's basically not been told well enough. Uh, I know we've got Yaf here from Formula One who'll be speaking shortly. He and his team are doing a lot of work to, to tell that story better as we go forward. But maybe talk a little bit about... Well, you, you know very well yeah. about what a pivot we're at in the no, automotive no. industry. Well, Biggest uh, ever, really. Well, let's just look backwards to the introduction of the, the latest generation of turbo engines with the, the, uh, the recycling units and everything in uh, they are today. They were, uh, they were just gems of engineering excellence. Absolutely sensational. What did Bernie Eccleston do? He said, I don't like the sound of these. Yeah. These are not very nice things. And they dumbed it down. They didn't wave the flag and say, look what we've created. Look what a great technology we've got. They actually had infighting to sort of try and... They didn't even talk about um, hybrid. They used no. the word curves. And they just pulled that, the rug yeah. from underneath it straight away. It was so foolish. It was yeah. just a, a, a real shooting themselves in the foot. Now, what's happened interestingly now is we've got to start to look for the future. We should really be looking, where is technology going to take us? And uh, uh, I think the Le Mans organizers have uh, already taken the high ground on this and said, we are going to make the top category at Le Mans in 2024 for hydrogen, hy uh, hydrogen fuel cell cars. And that's where we're going to be in uh, three to four years' time. We've got the interim period, we've got electric, and that will serve a purpose. We've got new fuels coming along as well, non-fossil fuels, all these things. And I think as a body in this country, and certainly as a governing body in this country, we must be agnostic towards the different solutions here. Uh, politicians tend to, with all due respect to you, Peter, tend to have simplistic messaging. Yeah. They just say, electricity is the answer, electric cars, let's go down that road. That is absolutely foolish. We have got so many other technologies to explore and in the longer term I suspect we'll come up with a, a very new technology likely as not hydrogen. Well, what about that Peter? I mean obviously you sit in Parliament, yeah. you're in the House of Lords, obviously you've got this whole Brexit thing to get through at the moment but I bet 
mobility and how you get people about, the 60-odd million people in our country, choking up the roads, diesel, all the rest of it. What is, how urgent is it for Parliament to find more efficient solutions and how par what part can racing play in that? Well, it's urgent for Parliament and government to support the industry to find and the market to find whatever is the best solution. I mean, the decision taken to go for electric was, a, in a sense, was a very, very centralised, almost Stalinist decision. Uh, we're going to ban it from Paris and London and so on, cars from London and uh, fuel, uh, you know, internal combustion engines in London and, 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 uh, and Paris and so forth. Well, that's one way of doing it, but then you've got incredible infrastructure issues to do with electric. I mean, I, 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 I drive a Nissan Leaf, and I know something a bit about this, and I'm in favor of it. But you've got to work with the industry, and as David says, it may be that hydrogen is the answer. It may not be. We don't know at the moment. Uh, but you can't just say by one decision, well, every egg is going to go in the basket of electric, um, and then you've then got to look at actually where you plug it in in London because there's a whole infrastructure issue there. Yep. So I, I think that you, you've got to, you know, Motorsport UK and all of you here, you've got to actually have a dialogue to take this forward. But there's no doubt, James, that the, the ability of government responding to pressure from the public correctly on the climate change emergency, we see what's happening in Australia at the moment, uh, is, is, is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger and you've got to be ahead of that curve rather than drag kicking and screaming into this new world the message couldn't be clearer right let's uh, open it up to the floor i'm sure you've got some questions you'd like to yes we've got one at the front here you talked about politicians responding to the public but the business of government is really done with the civil service and i was wondering to what extent uh, you might agree that Dominic Cummings's new initiative around recruiting more scientists and engineers is a good thing for our industry and could it change the culture of the civil service and those who carry out the business of the government and indeed would you agree that the culture of the civil service is a problem in this regard? I mean it could if you get more engineers and technologists into government into the civil service it could actually make a difference. I think they will find it quite tough because it's a completely different world to the one that most of you occupy. So it'll be interesting to see how these kind of fads come and go, that there was a big fashion for having business people running civil service departments. Running a business like David does is very different from being a permanent secretary you know, in one of the big departments. It's a very, very different job with all the compliance and accountability things and so forth that there are in the politics. I mean, some people make that transition, often they don't. Um, but what is important is that you know how to use the system. Often people say to me, how do I get a voice in government? And it is, if, you, if you've got a, a meeting with a minister, it's really important you prepare the ground beforehand, and that includes going to the relevant officials, and you're absolutely right, civil servants who brief that minister and prepare that, that meeting rather than just turn up and expect something to happen. Next one, please. Peter, we spoke earlier. Um, F1 in Schools provides thousands of new budding engineers wanting to get into this uh, sport and, and to serve these companies in this hall here. Um, but the design and technology as a subject is no longer compulsory, and um, that's our marketplace. 
So we're constantly facing going into schools where design and technology blocks are now changing rooms, toilet blocks, and uh, there's just no desire from uh, any of the teaching areas that we're involved in to actually push design and technology as a key subject. The government has to now put design and technology as a compulsory or put some form of way of putting engineering into the classroom as they do in many, many countries around the world from the age of 11. What can we do to change the government's view on this? Well, I completely agree with you. Um, and what F1 in <coughs> schools has done has been absolutely fantastic and still is doing. I can't understand this sort of decision. I mean, I started life as an engineer. Uh, I was a student apprentice with Lucas and I did a mechanical engineering first year in um, Imperial College at London University. And then I switched to political science and economics and was downhill after that. So I, I think engineering is crucial and people talk the talk in politics about we want to be the most skilled, you know, highly innovative tech economy in the world. But if you don't start in the classroom with design and technology and other engineering support uh, and enthuse the kids, that's not going to be possible. So, you know, you've got to all use your voice to start demanding more resources because it's partly a casualty of without getting political with big, big cuts in school funding. Big cuts. Uh, and that's been one of the casualties. Aren't they going to be reversed? Isn't that one of the election promises? Well, we will see. We will see. Um, there's nothing like the spending. 140 billion has been taken out of the economy in spending cuts over the past and tax rises over the past 10 years. Nothing like that scale of investment is being talked about at the moment. There's a lot of rhetoric politicians are good at, but you actually need to seriously invest in the skills base of this country. And unless you do, and that's expensive, but it pays off. It pays the money back by creating wealth generating businesses for decades to come. David, is that on your lobbying list? No, it's very much so. And, uh, but um, I think that comes from within as well. I think motivating the kids and uh, at a young age. And, uh, you know, we've, we've, there's always been this case of why don't we get more female engineers? And, well, you know, until we have a cultural change, and it is a generational change, where, you know, the, the, when the, the boys go out and play football in the playground and the girls stay in the classroom to do something on their own, until those sort of basic issues change in our, within our society, we're not going to develop engineers from that base. So we've got to, there are fundamental issues we have to tackle that are, things that politicians should be doing that we can't do ourselves. David's okay. right. I mean, all my granddaughters play football. <laughs> They're absolutely keen on it. I mean, and, and women's football is sort mm. of really growing. But that's come... It hasn't been a politician no. saying it. It's actually been people mm. doing it and society changing. You can change things. You don't just rely on government, although government can sometimes get in the way. Okay. Mm. Any more? Hey. Um, so we know the fourth... Industrial Revolution is changing the environment rapidly and there's new skill sets that uh, we need to obviously address. And there might even be a skill shortage in the motorsports industry um, as a result. So um, what do you think about leadership at the moment? There's a lot of focus around STEM and engineering, but what about leadership in the sport and what do you think the industry can do to empower the next generation of leaders, leaders in, the, uh, in the automotive and motorsport industry? I was talking to somebody on a similar subject to this last night because um, you see uh, 
our sport, and if you think about it for a minute, think of all the great teams in our sport that have, uh, that have come up through into the higher ranks of, of motorsport. They do revolve around one individual. And the sad thing is, and often the case, you see that when that individual leaves, moves on, or so unfortunately dies or something, then the, the organization sort of quietly wilts and disappears because it doesn't have the sustainable sort of management structures that corporate organizations tend to sort of embody in them. Um, so there's a lot of learning to be done in, in our, you know, we're, uh, we're an immature um, uh, industry in many respects. And I think we've got to learn from this and sort of, in fact, my own company, one of the things my challenge now is at my age is to develop a younger management team that can take over and, and make it a longer term proposition. I think it's, it's a thing that we've probably ignored as an industry and something that you're very right to raise. Big round for these guys, please. Well, now we have something very interesting, which is we're talking about this theme of motorsport and purpose, and we've been talking about government. But what do people, what are people saying about it? And particularly, obviously, social media is such a fantastic tool now. It can be good and it can be bad, but there's no question it's a great mirror of what people think. And here to tell us more is, is Dr. Gillian Ney from BuzzRadar. She is the first doctor of social media, which is a, a pretty amazing thing in itself. And BuzzRadar, which we work with, um, and strongly recommend you to, to work with them as well, because they, they do some great work, as you're, as you're about to see. They're an industry leader in audience intelligence and visualizing real-time social media data. They help some of the world's leading brands and organizations make smarter decisions by making data accessible, insightful, and actionable for everyone. So I give the floor over now, please, to Dr. Gillian Ney. Um, so as James said, um, my name is Dr. Gillian Ney. I'm the UK's first doctor of social media and a digital behavioral scientist. So that's basically just a fancy way of saying I get to analyze online data to find out how people make decisions. And also my passion is understanding how technology shapes society. James and the team had asked us a question, and th this was the question to answer. In a rapidly changing world, how does motorsport stay relevant and become a force for good? And you all work in an arena that is analytical and engineering focused, and it's difficult for the, us then to say, move into all of this social media data, all of this language data, and these fuzzy conversations to answer these fundamental questions. There, you have other angles that you can use in terms of research but what we're finding is that survey fans um, using surveys to add, uh, for fans is a self-selected audience and it tends to promote those kind of hardcore fans we're not getting the younger fans or the, the more casual fans where with social media data we can actually access those fans and those conversations so a lot of these conversations are organic they've been sparked by watching the sport or they've been sparked by some kind of marketing activity or coming into contact with something. Um, over the last three years, uh, Patrick and the team have been collecting all, all relevant mentions to do with Formula One and Formula E. So these mentions were collected um, in every language um, and there's 16 million of them there. So what, they were going to, what they've been doing is having a look at what, what topics um, are the most popular in terms of fan engagement, um, who are the most talked about drivers, and the impact of sports sponsorship as well. So 
probably one of the most enlightening and kind of new areas in this research as well um, is the ability to psychometrically profile audiences. So there's 150,000 um, people there that have been psychometrically profiled. Now, it's probably worthwhile for me to point out at this point that this information has been aggregated and anonymised, so we cannot target a specific individual. Um, we work ethically, um, unlike other things that's been in the press recently. Um, so these... This psychometric testing can um, look at personality traits, preferences, interests, um, and people's professions to understand um, how they relate to motorsport. For today, from this original question, we've been asked three sub-questions to look at, so they kind of follow in line with things that we've been talking about this morning. Now, I don't have time to go over all three questions, but we're going to look at the first two, which is about environment and diversity and inclusion. How is the environment affecting people's perception of motorsport? Again, it's a very big question to answer. For, the, for looking at the data, one of the first things that we went to do was go and understand about um, the climate change and environmental conversations online. So we can see here that there was, from 2016, there's been a very slow growth in these conversations. And then all of a sudden, from 2018 onwards, that has actually spiked significantly. Um, Greta Thunberg is in here as well. And as a result of her, what we're finding is that there's, there's, we've got the watershed moment here. There's more people talking about it. One, for these types of graphs, I always get a little bit sceptical. And I look at this and say, is it just a lot of noise, small group of noisy people or is it a diverse group of people? Where I would say probably around about the 2016 mark, we had a lot of just a small group of noisy people talking about this. But as a result of Greta, it's actually become more widespread and mainstream. Now, you might wonder how this is actually going to impact consumer behaviour, which is one of the questions, obviously, that I would like to answer. What we're finding is that because we're being involved in these conversations and we're seeing these conversations a lot more, it actually works the same way as like branding and advertising would work. The more we come in contact with it, the more likely it is that we can be persuaded. So it can affect lifestyle choices, purchasing decisions, brand alignments, um, and the way that we interact in the public. So here in the UK, if you think about this on a very small scale, we don't have plastic, we're getting rid of plastic straws, single-use plastics, we pay for plastic bags, there's more people um, using reusable water bottles um, and cups. So it's these types of small behaviours that can then snowball into larger behaviours. In terms of it, looking at it in um, the F1 sense, the Formula One sense, what we can see is when we gather Formula One related conversations and physician knows within that I mentioned about the environment, we can see a massive growth in this over the past year. So that conversation has actually tripled. When we go in and we look at that specific audience that are, that are mentioning and about the environment, when we profile them, we find that these people are, are younger um, and they're your, more your casual fans. Um, and there is some element in there that they're voicing concerns over the environment and are switching off. But having said that, within the same data set, what we can see is that there's evidence that there's a story of how motorsport can accelerate um, through green technology. We've already been speaking a little bit about this this morning, and certainly from the online audiences and fans, we're beginning to see a lot more of those conversations, and you can see the growth in that here. So while data shows that the hardcore older motorsports fans have the loudest voice, 
when it comes to online conversations, um, we can actually begin to navigate around and get to these younger fans because we can segment it on an age demographic um, and have a look for those more casual fans. So instead of just getting the one hardcore voice, we're able to get voices from more different types of people. One of the things that Patrick wanted me to kind of again reiterate here was is that these new fans and these online fans, the environmental conversation is growing and it's going to become a fundamental, it's going to become a fundamental point for their continued support. So again, reiterating things that have, we discussed this morning, um, there, we need to get a, a better narrative and story around about that. So the second question that we looked at was how technology is rapidly changing the diversity and inclusivity of motorsport. We know, and it was mentioned again this morning, about different grassroots initiatives into motorsport. Um, what we're finding is one of those examples has been karting. And the online audience and people talking about karting in 2019, there was only 7,000 mentions there. But our larger audience has come from the sim racing, the competitive audience. And there's, over, there's nearly a half a million mentions of that. Um, so we can see that the, there's more of an online audience here that can be tapped and primed ready to bring in into your world as well. This technology is presenting an amazing opportunity to improve inclusivity and the diversity of motorsport. The increase in popularity of sim racing is born out of the data. Um, with a large, large, rapidly growing and engaged audience um, that is much wider and more diverse than any other previous motorsport audiences. You may be wondering how this sim audience compares. So there was a slow growth in online conversations to do with sim racing, but what we're finding now is that it is the most popular motorsport conversation behind the championship conversations. Um, and that's outstripping karting by um, 71 times. This is all down to being, um, the lower cost, the lower barriers to entry. Um, Simulation technology has become good enough to realistically create 90% of the motorsport experience for people at home. And in numerical terms, in the past five years, um, become the gateway to the grassroots motorsport. It's a rapidly grown form um, of the sport which is cheap and massively accessible. Some of the Formula One drivers also participate competitively in the sport. And I think that for me, that offers a massive opportunity because it's kind of like you go in there and you, a comparison would be going to the park to play football and having a kick around with Ronaldo on a Sunday. There's, it's reducing the barriers of entry into the drivers as well, which could be a very big selling point in future. We, I only had 15 minutes with you today, and this is just a small part of the research. As I mentioned, there's been a lot more in depth about the different topics driving the conversations, what's happening with different, um, with different sponsorships and the perceptions of those. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to a special episode of this Autosport podcast. Over the next few weeks, we'll bring you more of these sessions from Autosport International. Please share this show with someone you know who loves motorsport, and please leave a rating review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more motorsport fans. And we'll see you soon on another Autosport podcast.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey, what's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text CLAY to 203203. Text CLAY to 203203 or go to bosley.com. That's bosley.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.